to your team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we're the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today is the third installment and grand finale of our three-part series on teenagers and sex. We started with, quote-unquote, the talk, then moved on to teen dating and relationships. And for this last episode, Justine Angfante is back to help us tackle a bear of a topic, pornography. But before we talk to Justine, we are going to, well, let me just say, it was hard for us to think what we were going to talk about, (laughs) because I would say that, at least for me, and Stephanie can disagree, but I'm a little uncomfortable with the discussion about (laughs) porn. And in fact, my kids and porn, and actually maybe everything and porn. So we had a little- So thanks so much for joining us. We (laughs) hope to see you next time. (laughs) But we did come to something that we could talk about, which um, it may be laughable to people listening that this is what we're (laughs) going to talk about in our intro to talking about porn. However, you know, there are times in my life where I thought what I was watching should actually qualify as porn. Like when Dan and I watched Sex in the City, I just couldn't believe that, like, that was not on TV when I was a kid. Like, that would have been rated X in a movie theater, and I could just turn it on on my regular TV. Anyway, I did love that show, and and we both watched it religiously together. But it it was, like, shocking to me that that was (laughs) kind of mainstream. Anyway, so I'll tell this one story, and then Steph and I are going to talk about sex education, and I'm sure Stephanie has some other stories, but we took our family to see This is 40. For anyone who saw This is 40, they know that you wouldn't take your family to see it. In fact, my mother was in visiting. It was on Thanksgiving. We always see a movie on Thanksgiving, and it opens with a sex scene in the shower between the husband and wife, and the kids are in the other room, and it's... And there I am with my five kids and my mother and my husband, and we just want to leave. We're like, uh, wrong movie. Let's go into the other one. Anyway, that is so benign now compared to what we see. <laughs> so nothing, right? Like right. absolutely no big deal. Anyway, so um, we both watched Sex Education, one of the best shows there is. Yeah. Would you agree? Totally. Totally. I loved it. I, I actually want to watch it again. Yes. I have seen some of it again to c- convince a kid to watch it, not because they want to watch it with me, but just because I want it. This is what yeah. we, we had That's that little trick topic. in our house. We got um, Ted Lasso. We got like, the kids were like, well, if our parents like it, we don't want to watch it. And then we said, well, let's just watch one episode together. And then they all went off and finished it. But anyway, the times have changed and sex education is like totally mainstream. And you know, the funniest thing about that is after we watched it, something came up and Todd was like, oh, he's like, I wonder if if Lane would want to watch it. I'm like, oh, she totally should. And then something comes up in the conversation. She's like, I've watched all of that already. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, but I would not have wanted to watch it with her. I think now I would. Now that I'm becoming Interesting. a new person. Now that I'm a new person who talks to people about porn on our podcast, I think I would watch it with my kids and be like, this is like, let's just talk about some of this. And I mean, mine are too old. They would never do it with me. But if they were in high school, I think at the very least, I would use it as a topic over dinner. And we yeah. thought, this was the yeah. moment that I want to live on. And in, in, in especially, well, I guess everyone's mind, that vulvas are all different. <laughs> yeah. I love totally. that cupcake scene. 
Like she <gasps> makes cupcakes that are decorated as different size vulvas. I mean, who has that conversation? And and which girl isn't walking around wondering whether they look normal or not, right? Like, Oh my God, totally, totally. There were so many, it's funny, when I was thinking about what we would be talking about today, I was thinking there were so many brilliant scenes. And and I think that's part of it because why I want to watch it again, because you just miss things and kind of knowing where it's going, sometimes that helps because you start to, you're like, okay, well, I know this relationship is going this way. Like now I'm going to start to pay attention to this. You just see things differently. But I was just thinking how many different types of relationships are portrayed in that show. Like I was even thinking about, um, oh my goodness, Ola is with um, Otis in the, I think, the first season. Then she is with uh, the the girl who draws all the characters and everything. So she's in a homosexual relationship in the second season or third. I can't even keep track now. Then you've got, like, the mom in different relationships, and she's pregnant as a 40-some-year-old, I think she is. Then you've got the kid. Like, I was just thinking, wow, like, they, if you try to, I was trying to think, I I actually said to my kids recently, if you want to get me a great gift and you're trying to figure out what to get me, get me a bid for me on something, like a pass to a writer's room of a show I love. That would be, like, one of those experiences I would love to sit in on. And I was thinking, like, how, you know, it's like in those crime shows where they have the tacks up on a wall and they start drawing all the lines to different things and showing how things are connected. I'm like, oh my God, if you had to start showing on sex education, how all these characters are related, how all these characters, the types of relationships they've had, the conversations, I'm like, wow, like it's so rich in dialogue, in diversity. And I just, I I love all that. Gets my head all sparkly. And none of it feels gratuitous. Like if anyone's watching- This season of Sex and the City, which is called... I don't even know. They have decided that they are covering every single topic. And it, it you can read the header on that week. It's like, this week we will we will talk about non-binary and we will talk about pronouns and we will... And it's like, it feels so forced. But sex education, it is completely like as comfortable in all of their lives. Like, it's just not a totally. big deal. So for me, like that, that the vulva cupcakes were like... I don't know, just mind-blowing, that I couldn't even talk about it now. Like, it's so normal, and I say it all the time. And then <laughs> and then the other one at the very end of season two, where the trans boys, one is helping the other to stop. Like, there's actually an apparatus you buy to bind, to push your breasts down so they're not noticeable. And the other one had been binding their, themselves. Oh, yeah. And the, it was so tender and it was mm-hmm. so something I never knew about. And just, again, another moment of being brought into 2022 in a way that was like warm, touching. Yeah. It's funny. So your comments just led me to, I was thinking, yeah, like it, it's like you get to peer in on them. It's almost like you pulled back a curtain and you're watching all of these lives unfold. But I was thinking about the the new principle, hope maybe, and how she just comes in and ruins everything. And how these kids rally around each other. It made me think about just as a parent or as um, even a, call it a grown-up, like let leaving kids, there is a place for leaving kids to their own devices. And especially like how kids, like the scene you just described, Sue, like how these kids supported each other and helped each other. And it's these tender moments that I wonder if there'd be more of them if we just didn't get in their way. 
<laughs> just I was thinking about that. And uh, that character, that hope, who really just, ugh, ugh, gives me the willies. Because she's such a negative presence. Yeah. I mean, there are adults when their positive presence is felt changes that childhood future. So I, sure. I don't, and I think like a, a good administrator knows when to get out of the way, like that the kids yes. are going to manage I'm saying it. she was so abhorrent. She was terrible. Okay, so we're not going to get into details of, about our own personal lives on this topic, but I do want to say that one of the things I felt very much about sex education as a as a series is that teenagers and people are just all desperate to find out that they're normal. And when it comes to sex education, we don't do a great job of it. So what kid ever knows that the way they are developing is not like anyone near them, but totally normal, which then leads me to the next comment, which is why porn is so dangerous, because it does create for our teenagers a sense of that being the norm. And then they don't have anything to offset it. And that's what Justine is going to give all of us the ways we can offset and counter the sense of porn being normal. Like that's aspirational for us and we're never going to get there as opposed to it being a media and entertainment. And so Justine just takes us all down a path that's going to make all of us better at what we're doing in life. So up next is our conversation with Justine Angfante. We can't wait for you to join us. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Do you ever feel like your mind doesn't have an off switch or the tension is constantly traveling through your body? Or do you feel tired no matter how much you sleep? That's just a few of the many ways stress, anxiety, and sleeplessness can harm your mind and body. So this year, why not make small changes to your daily routine that can have a big influence on your mental health and well-being? Start your year with Headspace. Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved that in just two weeks, two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. And I know for sure that I need to reduce my stress. My stress is a running reel in my brain that doesn't stop about things I'm anxious about, about things I'm not anxious about, about stupid things that I don't know why I'm thinking about them. And when I sit down and turn on Headspace, I do get this feeling of a clear brain, a brain that is calmer. I feel 
less anxious. However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash your teen and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available, so go to headspace.com slash your teen today. Headspace.com slash your teen. Justine Angfante is a sexuality educator, producer, and a daughter of Philippinex immigrants. As a nationally recognized speaker, Justine consults to both public and private institutions across the United States on intersectional health education topics and is a speaker to thousands of students in school communities. Justine, thank you so much for being here with us today. Justine, the last time we talked, You walked us through sex ed and you made us feel better equipped to have conversations. I might even say that we feel good about having these conversations that once felt daunting and impossible. You provided sex ed 101. Then we spoke with psychologist Tori Cordiano about our role in teen dating. Let's call that sex ed 201. And today we are moving into the upper level course, the really hard one, porn, which we're going to call... 301. And is there a 401 or can we say this is the end of the journey? (laughs) This is far from the end of the journey, my students. Okay. Well, how about porn's such a hard one for us to wrap our heads around when it comes to our kids. We don't even know. I don't know where my role is in this story. I'm not even sure I'm really so aware of the facts. So can we start with that? Like, for example, are all kids watching porn? And like, how young are they starting? Like, is it 20? (laughs) (laughs) So the data is varied, but what we're seeing is that as young as eight years old, you can be exposed to porn if you have some type of smart device. That doesn't mean that you are purposely looking for it. It might be a pop-up because of how predatory some parts of the industry are in trying to get young consumers to use their curiosity and quench it by accessing things that are so different than what they normally would see on a regular basis. But other times it might be, you know, a classmate or a friend just saying, oh my gosh, look at this. And they just shove the iPad in their face. Or they, you know, are starting to develop a crush on someone and they want to know how they can show affection. So they might Google, how do I kiss someone? And then they're learning these things through mediums that aren't taking into account their their well-being and their developments. So in terms of ages, it can be as young as 8 to 11 from what the studies are showing. And that is shocking for most parents because they believe their child is bubbled and sheltered enough to never be exposed to something like that. When in fact, I really think it's more of a defense mechanism using that denial by them not being ready to have that conversation because they may not have even been talking about Sex Ed 101 content yet. So 8 to 11 is what um, we're seeing. I've also seen studies that have shown in terms of percentages of teens that are watching porn. The numbers range from 40% to 70%, really just depending on gender. The idea that... um, so many boys are exposed to it, and this isn't something girls are dealing with, is totally a myth. We do have 
young women that are watching porn and on purpose. The reason we don't want to believe that or that the number might be lower than what we have for data on boys is because there isn't an emphasis or even a regard of female pleasure. So the stigma is a lot higher for female viewers to not be able to admit or not even try because they don't even realize that pleasure is something they are worthy or deserving to be able to experience. Nonetheless, yes, kids are watching porn. No, it is not every single person. And in terms of access, I mean, it's really about smart devices and you know who has access to, to those. But it is no longer popular to be looking through like Playboy magazines per se. It is really on the same screens that they're, you know, playing video games and that they're scrolling through social media. It's the same devices now. So my quick calculation based on your 40 to 70% is that of my and Sue collection of eight kids, three to five of them have <laughs> been watching porn way before we even thought of it. So let's just, let's go with those numbers that you gave us. So once we're done listening to the podcast, what is the conversation we need to be having with our teens? Well, the conversation should have started before the one on pornography. So I'll assume that our listeners have gotten the 101 and the 102 already from your pod. And if that's the case, this is already going to be an easier conversation because then you can reference the 101 and the 102 about, hey, Remember how we talk, we've been talking about pleasure and safety and fulfillment being at the forefront of your experiences? They would respond yes, because they're such an obedient, attentive teen. <laughs> and then you would say, I want you to be able to use that same lens and use it in a critical way if you are exposed to sexually explicit media. Because what you might be seeing in sexually explicit media, like pornography, which involves naked people that are interacting with other naked people, doing things that adults may do to show affection or to connect, may not actually be showing you things that are safe, that are gonna be pleasurable for you, or that are gonna make you feel good about your body and your identities. And I don't want you to assume that what you're seeing is doing those things. And so that's how we teach them the literacy component of pornography. And in schools that are teaching this stuff, it's, it's really called porn literacy. And that's how I kind of title this work. What I love about what you just said, I mean, anytime someone can give me words, I'm so much more comfortable walking in a space that I might not otherwise be comfortable. I'm so grateful for like literally having the language to use. Okay, so all of this is like, I don't want to say new for us, but new for us to be talking about. There's a little bit of disbelief. You mentioned it earlier. You know, we think our kids are the ones not doing it. But as Stephanie pointed out, the likelihood is our kids are doing it. At least if we have multiple kids, someone is doing it. Do we have to worry about addiction? Is there a too much factor to watching porn? Addiction is a tough word because we could argue that the definition is that it's something that you need or that you feel like you can't do without. And we could say the same thing about water and oxygen, right? And so when it comes to porn, I think that the term porn addiction is misused often and it's overused. What I like to say is we never want of any age to be dependent on any one thing to cope 
with whatever it is that's creating imbalance for us. Whether that's like mindfulness practices or getting enough sleep or exercise, we also don't want that to be the only way we cope. So if we're reaching out to porn in order to experience pleasure physically, there better be other ways that you also know how you can bring your body pleasure, right? And we don't want them to be dependent on any one thing. And the thing is, porn is so extreme when it comes to the mainstream part of the industry and so different than what young people are used to seeing around bodies that it's so attractive to them. So when something is so extreme and attractive to them, they start to use it as the one way that they can derive sexual pleasure. And one, they're not even supposed to be accessing it because they're not 18 years old yet, but we know they are. So when they're accessing something that isn't even supposed to be something they are supposed to be watching, then that extra tabooed layer makes it so that it's uh, really interesting, it's really um, attractive, and then it can be something they become dependent on. So in the same messaging you would about certain types of foods in your home, snacks, you know, and then coping mechanisms around all things mental health, you want to send the message to your kid that I never want you to become dependent on any one thing in order for you to thrive. Because what if that one thing isn't there? How are you going to be fulfilled? How are you going to feel safe? And how are you going to be able to experience pleasure? If you're in an internship, you're at a camp for three months, you're not going to have access to the smart device. Then what? Right? So we want them to understand how to explore their body in a variety of different ways and certainly not through porn. But because we know they're going to be exposed to it, we want to make sure that they have that critical lens as to what they're watching is not education, but is created for entertainment. Then they'll understand too that this isn't the one way that can give me pleasure. That's excellent. And let, let's stay right on, on that line of thinking. So we hear that porn is changing our teens' expectations of sex and thinking that they have to do these things and certain things that they have seen on the screen, right, on their device. How can we as parents, I'm assuming we can, <laughs> play a role in dispelling those myths? How would we do that? What does that sound like? What does it look like? First, reminding your young person that who they are seeing is a performer. They are an actor, and so you can use something like non-sexually explicit media and just talk about what do you know about Photoshop? What do you know about the front cover of magazines? What do you know about commercials, auditions, right? All of those things means it's going through a certain process to either filter out a certain human being whose body type or features don't match or align with usually a standard of beauty. So that's like already one layer that the people that are even making it to these, um, you know, to uh, a role or the front cover or of an ad or something are people who have been curated to be there. On top of that, oftentimes they are photoshopped or they have a glam squad or they have a nutritionist or a personal trainer. They have resources that will alter what their body looks like, right? But we keep forgetting that because we figure, well, this is probably what they really look like. It could be, but then it's that person's job to look like that because they are a fashion model or they are a, you know, fitness influencer, right? Or they are an athlete, right? So they have all of these other things that are creating a body that is not common. 
So just saying that same message is one that matches well with porn performers. Yes, there is amateur porn where there are, quote, real people just putting themselves up there for people to access. In terms of mainstream pornography that involve porn performers, it's the same thing. Photoshop, glam squad, plastic surgery, you know, nutritionists, personal trainers, whatever, and still having to go through an audition process to see if they can even perform and act in the way that the producers and directors want. So talking to them about that literacy component of these are not people who always represent real life. That's really the first main thing. Even using the phrase porn performers changes my perspective on the story so much. That I think is like even that little pivot is such a game changer for how we have the conversation. The things we've read and heard about are like the dangers of teens watching porn one story in particular is, I think it's mostly male, but maybe you, you'll correct this. Their enjoyment and arousal is so much greater when they're watching porn that they're having difficulty in real life relationships. Is that happening? We are seeing that from some clinical psychologists who work with adolescents in that the extreme nature of a lot of mainstream porn scenes is one that is deriving um, a rewiring in their brain as to how dopamine is hitting them in a way that real people aren't aren't able to conjure now. And so that's what I mean about that dependence, right? If you think about it like a drug, it's going to, you know, be a quick fix to having like nothing to all this pleasure, but in a way that doesn't take into account all these layers of intimacy and connection and being in relation with another human being slash a relationship. And so when you have that quick on-demand pleasure, it makes it so attractive to only seek out pleasure and sexual pleasure through porn. And so then you have these young people that become accustomed to only getting off literally in this medium so that when they are actually communicating or in a relationship with an actual human being, they're not as turned on by the ways that dopamine hit them through orgasm, which was even amplifying it from what they were seeing on on porn and on a screen. So yeah, that that dependence is causing a reliance on that form, but also a, a dulling effect and a desensitization effect to real human beings that they would want to be in person intimate with. Peggy Ornstein wrote this book on boys and sex, And one of the things that stuck with me was a discussion she had with a teenage boy that the most romantic thing he could do in a relationship was hold hands. I mean, it's so interesting when you think about what they're exposed to and then what they recognize as intimacy. Is, Is that a thing? Is that just one person's story or is that a thing? I do think it's a thing. I have a sadder story from a school that I had worked with. And um, it was a school that uh, had sent out and administered an anonymous survey on sexual behaviors to their high school campus. And one of the questions was about, you know, do you prefer vaginal intercourse or oral sex to heterosexual boys? And the um, statistics were showing that they preferred oral sex over vaginal intercourse. And when there was follow-up as to why, the most popular reason why they prefer oral sex over vaginal intercourse is because, quote, I don't have to look her in the eye. That's intimacy. Right? So it's, it's intimacy is the scary thing here, 
right? And so when you get pleasure on demand, you don't have to worry about how the other person is thinking. You don't have to worry about your own actions being enough for another person. It's just you. It's a one-sided experience. And when that becomes your regular form of experiencing sexual pleasure, then why would you be interested in being in relation with another human being where it entails you having to ask, do you like that? Does that feel good? Do you want more? Are you happy? This is why we don't have a consent culture because those are all consent questions. So there's just so many layers of problems when we are relying on porn to be our instruction manual when it is far from that. It is an entertainment industry, not an education one. So in this entertainment industry, we're including porn in that, which I don't think I ever realized before, like this this idea of like putting a performance on for the viewer so that they'll keep coming back. But I also have this bias in my head about like, if they're porn performers, is there a subculture of, of um, force and they're not there willfully? And then I've heard this other term called ethical porn. So I think that's some, something that might resonate with this generation of kids, like they want ethical. And so if the story involves unethical, is there a way we can talk about that that makes a difference? I think what's misunderstood about the pornography industry is that people often think they're all the same. And just like the movie industry, the Hollywood industry, right? There is so many, there are so many genres and there are so many different ways to produce films. There are so many ways to audition people, right? And there's so many ways to use actors. That is the same in the pornography industry. So there can be a huge range of things as far egregious as sex trafficking involved in pornography, all the way to person who has always wanted to become a porn performer because they know how empowering it is for themselves and the celebration and sex positivity that comes from being able to celebrate sexuality in such a beautiful, fantastical way. That is a very wide range. And especially in a lot of you know political spaces, pornography gets reduced to only one negative thing, as if everyone is forced to be doing that right? The stigma of it means that these people were settling for this as their job. All of those things can be true, but that is not the case for, you know, how we describe the whole industry. Yes, there is ethical porn. Yes, there is feminist porn, but there is also really harmful porn and there is very criminal porn that is out there. The porn that I talk about in my classes with young people is mainstream pornography. And I don't mean mainstream in the terms of like, here's what's common to do in sex. I'm talking about mainstream being easily accessible, free porn. The simple Google search or whatever is available on like a platform like Pornhub, where you don't have to have a premium package, pay for a subscription or anything. It's the free stuff. And so when you have that free layer there, then it means that you're going to get things that are not taking into account the actual well-being of the porn performer, right? Otherwise, if I'm watching things for free, how is this person, you know, getting a 401k? Are they getting health insurance and benefits? Are they getting at least minimum wage? We don't know that when it comes to mainstream porn. But when it comes to ethical porn, where the only way you can watch it 
is by paying for the service. We know that that payment is going towards someone or some benefit. And so payment is one, right? But it's also, do they have intimacy coordinators on set? If they're doing a scene that might trigger a past trauma they've experienced, that's going to be a really difficult thing for this employee of this porn company to have to do, right? Are we making sure that, the, that everyone is tested? People are negative. People are getting tested afterwards to prevent either unplanned pregnancy or to protect themselves from STIs. All of that has to do with the well-being of the people behind the screen. Those aren't things that are often talked about. And so ethical porn is really looking a lot at equity around, you know, gender, around pleasure for all. It's looking at how race is not something that's meant to be a genre or to be further marginalized like mainstream porn often will do. For example, making black porn performers be in scenes where they are the they're the aggressor or they're a criminal or they're a thug or they're a gang member. That just amplifies the systemic racism we already experience in the real world and now we're amplifying that with high dopamine hits through orgasm. That reinforcement is highly problematic, right? And when we're talking about payment, right? Are they getting paid the same amount as white porn performers? Well, we know in interracial couples, it usually means a white female porn performer and then a black male porn performer. And that white woman is getting paid more than that black man. So we have so much, you know, um, unethical things that are happening just like we do in the world outside of porn. But when it comes to porn, it's actually rewiring our brain to see images or to perpetuate these marginalizations of employment in ways that young people are definitely overlooking and need to be thinking about as they are consuming any product. I'm a little confused in that part. They're not 18, so we shouldn't be encouraging them. Like, we shouldn't be facilitating them doing this. On the other hand, they are doing it. So we talk to them about safe ways to do it. But it, once we throw in paying for it, is that like a, an allowance payment? <laughs> So it's never my prescription to tell parents, hey, for Christmas this year, you should just purchase a subscription of ethical porn for your child. That is not the way to do it. It's when you're talking to them about it or they're defending themselves, their, their usage of it, saying like, it's fine. Yes, it's bringing me safety, fulfillment and pleasure. OK, and you're like, but do you know that what you are exposing yourself to is you know, a reinforcement of a lot of systemic oppressions that are present in the workplace and for specifically people of color, right? That's another point for you to make in terms of being porn literate because this is something they're not thinking about, right? This is something we want them to start thinking about. We want them to start thinking about their consumerism in a much more conscious way and not just getting things because they're free, because this is the culture that is used to that, right? Or they don't see where their money goes. So we're talking to them about how I'm not convinced that porn, mainstream porn, is giving you ideas on how to live in a safe, fulfilling, and pleasurable life. If you think you actually are doing that, then I wonder how you are dismantling the systemic oppressions that are present in mainstream porn by accessing the stuff for free. And also based on your identities, are you seeing your own identities represented in a way that is 
really in service of your well-being? Or if you are watching porn of people of a different identity, what is it teaching you about people of those identities now, right? Are they a fetish to you? Or are they a person of color that just happens to be a person of color? Or, de- or now are you developing an attractiveness to them because they are of a certain person of color, right? These are the th- questions we want them to start thinking of, and they're not thinking of it because we don't want them to believe what they're seeing in porn is education on race and on queer identities, right? We, and, and the ways that they are being portrayed now are really harmful, for the most marginalized of people. Those conversations are great conversations to have with them. What about that first time you, quote, catch them watching porn? What's that conversation? It goes back to the same, safety, fulfillment, pleasure. Hey, I saw on uh, the search history that you were on Pornhub the other day. I want to make sure, as your parent, that you have safety, fulfillment, and pleasure in your intimate lives. My concern when I saw that Pornhub was in your church history, is that you're being exposed to something that is not safe, fulfilling, or pleasurable for you. So can you talk me through what feelings you had when you were on that site? Was it because you were curious about your own body changing now that it's going through puberty? Are you curious about how to show affection to someone you have a crush on? Are you just wondering what it's like? And now that you've figured out what it's like, I want to know how you feel about it. Nowhere in there are we shaming them, right? Because we know that it's common for them to be curious about these things, but we're centering it on those three things, safety, fulfillment, pleasure from Sex Ed 101. Yeah, my next question was about to be, uh, what don't we say? So staying away from shame, staying away from, um, I'll call it blame and shame. The worst thing you can do is say like, oh my God, I saw you watching porn. I'm never letting you on the computer again. Or I'm taking away all your smart devices right? Or um, that's disgusting, right? All of those things are not going to be helpful for them. What we want them to do, you know, is to be critical and to also be in tune with their own emotions because maybe they accidentally went there. Maybe there was a a pop-up, right? Or maybe their intention is really because they just want to know how to kiss somebody that they have a crush on. And we let them know, look, if there's If there's a question you have about your body, how your body's changing, about what other bodies look like, there are much safer places to get accurate information about actual people who aren't performers. And I can help you find those resources or I can answer those questions for you, right? Same goes for showing affection to other people, right? And then, you know, if it's like, no, I'm here because I'm trying to get off, mom, you know, if they're that like open with you, they're like, well, I want to make sure that you have other ways to actually, you know, experience pleasure because this can't be your only way. And I don't want the ideas that mainstream porn are exposing you to, to be reinforced as okay or educational, or you apply that same framework in the real world by now thinking that this is what people are actually like. You've worked with middle school and high school kids. I don't know if it's something that comes up in conversation with them, but do they ever share with you what parents, their parents are getting right and what they're getting wrong around these conversations? Like, what do they wish we would say? The answer is no, because they are just so afraid to even be talking about this stuff. There is so much stigma, taboo, and shame around sexuality 
more so pornography, that it often is a lesson that they are just absorbing material and hearing for the first time an adult that isn't shaming the idea of your sexuality or your curiosity about your sexuality. So they aren't even going as far as saying, hey, Miss Fonte, so here's how my parents talk to me about porn. Like they're not even ready to do that. Second, if the kid was someone brave enough to share that, they don't have parents talking to them about porn because parents don't want to talk about porn. So they don't even have a story to share if they were willing to share one. But what I would say is that I know they're receptive to the ways that I am teaching porn literacy because it doesn't involve shaming them or blaming them. And it is through a sex positive lens. Students, my goal for you as your health teacher is that you experience safety, fulfillment, and pleasure in your love lives. My concern when you are exposed to pornography is that it is not in service of those three things. Let me show you examples of how. I teach that lesson, we go through with it, right? And we let them know that it's totally common for you to wanna know how your body works or what it might look like or what other bodies look like when they don't have clothes on. I want you to know that there are more accurate places to get that information. And Justine, if parents are looking for more information, where can they go? They can go to Sex Positive Families. It's my favorite resource for families and parents. The website has a plethora of information, a lot of um, you know book lists for them to access things, for them to read, for their child to read or to watch or to listen to. My second favorite resource is amaze.org, which is a video resource for parents and kids alike to understand all aspects of sexuality and give them the information that they need. So I would say that those are the two go-tos. They're highly accessible and just really uh, comprehensive in how it talks about pornography, sexuality, and doing so in a sex-positive way. That's excellent. Thank you. All right, so a slight twist on our last question. When you have these conversations with teenagers, what surprises you the most? You know, I've been in the profession for so long that nothing surprises me now, but I'm in trying to think about people who are not in this profession, a lot of things in that they are watching porn. Uh, that would be the first one. Uh, I, I already know that that is the case, so that part doesn't surprise me. But I guess like things that are either reinforced and, uh, you know, if I feel like we've, we've already done a good job because we're, t- we're in a more sex positive world, then, you know, why are they still thinking these things? I think it might be that they are still very much rooted in the fact that sexuality is something to be shameful about. So that surprises me that we're still at that place where it's why, you know, they are so engaged, but so silenced, especially the young women. When I do get actual volunteers that participate, it's mainly my students that identify as boys because it's already more accepted that if they are gonna do something taboo, then they're a boy. So just by virtue of the idea that, you know, well, this is something that's more likely with this gender, then hearing from them won't be such a surprise. And so when I start bringing up aspects of like pleasure is deserving, uh, you know, everyone's deserving of that. And here are the problems. They start to look at it through the social justice lens. And I really want them to be conscious consumers. I'm never going to get them, you know, to abstain from things. And I can't censor it, but I can make them literate 
And, you know, that's what helps about having a master's in education, the ability to teach this stuff in a way that is palatable, accessible, and at the age level that makes sense for them cognitively and in terms of in terms of the relevant world that they live in. So what surprises me most is that we're still in, you know, an era where young people are still very shamed for even wanting to know more about how their bodies work and how other people's bodies work. That it's inhibiting them from being able to even talk about it. So your story is no different than ours as parents. We, we can't censor it. We don't have the power to do that. But we can make them literate. So you have just given us a big gift today again. And if you haven't watched the first episode with Justine, you should go back and watch it. It's from four weeks ago, and it was really instructive and all equally as fantastic. Justine Fonte, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com at evergreenpodcast.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. in Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.